Nothing's going to stop us from, from studying God's word. So John chapter 7, verse 37. And as we're turning to that passage, let's just pray to God to ask for his blessing upon this word. Gracious Lord, as we turn to your word, may you clear our hearts and minds of any distractions. And, and though the weather might be fierce and, and wild and woolly outside, may we, in your sanctuary, be your people that can focus upon your word. And may we be blessed and built up in our faith as we study your word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I'm not sure whether all of you are new Christians or you've been a Christian for many, many years. I just, when I look at the Gospel of John, I was encouraged when I first became a Christian by an elderly gentleman who had witnessed to me that time to read the Gospel of John, that make it the first thing you read when you become a Christian. And I thought, well, maybe he wants me to read it because I'm a fairly simple sort of guy and he doesn't want to make things too complicated for me. But the more and more I've come across the Gospel of John and the more I read it, the more I understand how there's so many deep and rich insights in this Gospel. So what may be easy for the new Christian to read, for the person who's been a Christian for 20 or 30 years, will also continually be blessed by reading the Gospel of John. It's so simple, but yet it's so rich in truth. And so I just pray that as we do study this passage today, we'll be, whatever situation we are in our faith, we'll be learning some new rich truths today as we study this Gospel. But whenever you do study the Gospel of John, there's one thing that you should always focus upon as to why this Gospel was written. Could you just keep your finger in where that passage is and flick forward to chapter 20 and verse 31. Because this is, in many ways, a key verse of why this gospel was written. So John chapter 20, verse 31, and it says, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So when you look at that verse, and when you come up across a passage that we're going to come across today where we might wonder... What's Christ teaching here? We need to come at this passage with an understanding of this passage is here to help us to focus upon Christ. This passage is here to help us focus in our understanding of Christ. So let's look at this passage with that verse as as a background. Okay? So go back to chapter 7 and back to verse 37. Now, to get a context of before I read these verses of where we are, we're sort of midway through the, the public ministry of Jesus. In the previous chapter, chapter 6, Jesus has, has fed 5,000 people from the loaves and, and the fish. And during the, that miracle, and, and in explaining that miracle, Christ has proclaimed himself as the bread of life. And through the chapters beforehand, Christ has been... And, explaining to community through miracles and through situations of of who he is, you know. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. He is the long-awaited Messiah. And you'd think the whole community would be saying, great, fantastic, this is the Messiah we've been waiting for. But what you find through these chapters is, though there are responses to Jesus' claims, the opposition to Jesus is also growing as well. Now, the Jews are, are starting to really think, this guy's 
He's a bit of a negative influence here. We've got to do something about him. And even at the end of chapter 6, when, when Christ makes this claim about being the bread of life, a lot of people actually walk away. So he would have had a crowd of thousands or so people following him. When Christ makes this claim, people think, oh, I, just don't, I just don't get who he is. I don't get what he's saying. So a lot of people walk away. So we come to chapter 7. The opposition to Jesus is, is, is at its peak. People are still not sure who he is. And there's this opportunity now for Jesus to come to the Feast of Tabernacles. So it must be important for Jesus to be there. Why would he go to such a public um, occasion if he knew that there was great opposition, if he knew that people were against him? So whatever Jesus teaches at this celebration in chapter 7 must be a very important truth for people to know. So as we know, Jesus is coming to the Feast of Tabernacles. The Jewish faith has three main feasts. The Feast of Tabernacles, the Passover Feast and the Festival of, week, of, the Festival of Weeks. Now you've all probably heard of the Feast of Tabernacles. It's where they live in little cubby huts that they make out of palm fronds. They do this for about a week. And this feast is sort of celebrating the, the time when the Jews were in the wanderings from Egypt going to their promised land. And they remember how God provided for them during those wanderings for the 40 years, how he provided food for them and water and how he provided shelter for them. So this was a very important feast for the Jews. In fact, it was probably one of the most well-attended feasts that they had. And it went for a whole week. And it was really focused around Jerusalem and around the temple. Part of the celebration of the feast was that every day people would walk into the, the great temple with a a palm branch in one hand to signify the shelter that God provided and then they'd walk in with a, a bit of fruit in the other hand to sort of signify how God had provided for them during their wandering. So shelter and food, which well, the good things of life. But no, another aspect of the feast, which we don't really know a lot about, but it is quite central to that feast, was the, the idea of water. On each day of the feast, at the start of the feast, or at the start of each day, a, a priest would go from the temple and carry this big, you know, big gold jug thing and go down to the pool of Siloam and, and fill the jug, take it back to the temple and then pour it out into a bowl on the altar. And when they were pouring that water out, people would, would, would chant you know, from that verse in Isaiah which says, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. So this happened every day for seven days. So the idea of What's happening here is people are remembering how God provided water during their wanderings in the desert and how Moses was able to get water from the rock through God. So we've got a temple and a people, a community focused on the idea of, of water being provided by God and how water was so essential for them to live. Without water, they were, they were finished. So every year at this feast, they were turning to God saying, we praise you for what you did during our wanderings. We're now trusting in you to provide more water in the coming year for our crops, for our food, for our bodies. This is where we come to verse 37. It's the eighth day. It's the last day of the feast. There's no water being drawn. They don't draw water on that day. So everybody's come to the temple wanting to bring praise to God. And Jesus speaks. Verse 37. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, 
If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. On this last day, the Jews would have been thinking about their physical needs. They would have been thinking about God has provided food and he's provided water for us and that's what we need to turn to God for now. We need God to provide us water for the coming year. Without water we won't survive. They were thinking about their bodies. Christ has taken this to another level. Christ has turned their attention away of providing for their physical needs and he's saying, I have come here to provide water for your spiritual needs. You are a people who are spiritually thirsty. Your souls have been in drought for years. I have come to provide nourishment for your souls. I have come to provide living water, spiritual water. That is what you need. So he's saying to a people, anybody who's spiritually thirsting, anybody whose soul is longing for a restored relationship with God, anybody who comes to the temple every year hoping that your sacrifice will make you right with God, but then thinking, why do I have to keep doing this? Why do I have to keep coming to this festival? I I can't find this satisfaction. Anybody who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, Christ has come to satisfy that need. And the only way to obtain that living water is to trust in Jesus Christ and in his words. And that's all he's telling these people. Trust in me. Trust in who I am saying I am. Trust in what I say. And I can give you that living water. You will no longer be spiritually thirsting. So what is this living water? Is this H2O, is it the thing that we heard falling on the roof a few minutes ago? Is that what Jesus has come to provide? Well, the scripture answers itself here, doesn't it? If we look at verse 39, it says, By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. The living water that Christ has promised here is the assurance of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit for those who trust in Jesus Christ as the Saviour. The living water that is being promised here is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that is promised to those who trust in Jesus Christ as the Saviour. Now, I guess there can be a bit of confusion here when we see words that say, up to that time the Spirit had not been given. And in fact, some people have said, well, is this verse now implying that we're at a passage in in world history where the Holy Spirit has, has not existed before? Is that what this verse is saying? No, it's not. Because we know that the Holy Spirit is eternal. We know that the Holy Spirit was there when all things were created. We know that the Spirit hovered above the waters. We know that the Holy Spirit spoke to the prophets right through the Old Testament. We know that the Holy Spirit spoke to Isaiah. We know that the Holy Spirit led the disciples to come to Jesus and to trust in him. 
We know that the Holy Spirit led fishermen to cast aside their nets and to take Jesus at his word and follow him. But what it's saying here is that the Holy Spirit had not come to its full realisation in the lives of believers at that stage. It meant that Jesus had to do something before the Holy Spirit could fully indwell into people's lives. It meant that people, as they were, were struggling with something. It meant that there was something inside of people that would stop the Holy Spirit from doing its work. And we know that that something is sin. We know that people who are struggling with sin had their lives led by sin. So sin had to be dealt with. So the only way that sin could be dealt with is through Jesus. And that's why we know Jesus went to the cross. We know that Jesus suffered the punishment for our sins. We know that he died on the cross. And we know that he rose from the dead. And that's what we're talking about when it says here, Jesus had not yet been glorified. When Christ went to Calvary, when he died and when he rose from the dead, when he paid that price for sin, he had been glorified. And what that means is, sin had been dealt with. And it means that when Christ left the earth, when he ascended into heaven, it was the Holy Spirit that would live in the lives of his followers. It would be the Holy Spirit that would guide his disciples. No longer was Christ beside them, Christ was within them through the working of the Holy Spirit. And that's the promise that is being made here. The living water that's being promised here is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to guide the hearts and minds of those who trust in Jesus. That their lives will not be led by sin, that their lives will be led by the Holy Spirit. Can you understand how in a temple packed full of literally a thousand or so people, in hearing this claim from Jesus would have reacted? They're saying that So you're promising me that the Spirit of God will be dwelling within me and that you can provide that? You're saying that no longer will I have to offer sacrifices at the altar every every day for my sins, but that you're going to provide a Holy Spirit to renew my relationship with God, that you're going to provide a Holy Spirit that will renew my walk with God each day. This is big news for a community that is spiritually starving. The Messiah has come. The Messiah has come to quench the thirst of a dry and thirsty nation. God no longer dwells in the temple, but God will dwell in the hearts of his people through the Spirit. These are great, great, profound truths. So if we're trying to... Like I said, I'm a simple guy. Okay, you get that. If we try and condense all of these verses into one line, if we want to just walk out out today and and say, right, what can I remember that Matt said from all the other stuff that he said? We can say that Jesus has promised that the living water of the Holy Spirit is promised to everyone who truly believes that Jesus is the Lord and Saviour. Jesus has promised that the living water of the Holy Spirit is promised to everyone who truly believes that Jesus is the Lord and Saviour. 
let's think in today's terms. Turn the clock 2,000 years forward from that festival. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Do you believe that Jesus is the Lord and Saviour? Is your life indwelt by the Holy Spirit? While you're pondering that, while you're praying about that, let's just quickly work through the remaining verses because there may be somebody here today who's not sure how to answer that question. There might be somebody here today who's not sure if Jesus is the Christ, who's not sure if their life has been filled by the Holy Spirit. If we look at the remaining verses, we can see how the response of some of these people here mirrors the response of of the community today towards Jesus. Look at verse 40. On hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. And there might be somebody here today, or I'm sure there's sure to be people out there today in the community who've heard about Jesus many times before. I'm sure there's people out there who've heard the sayings of Jesus and have thought, you know, this guy said some pretty good things. This guy is the prophet, you know, he's, he's, he's a man of God. He's, what he says is, is pretty good. But that's not the full picture of Jesus, is it? Yes, Jesus is the prophet. He is the prophet that was foretold in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, which says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. When you study Hebrews, chapter 3 talks about Jesus being the prophet. But then it also talks about Jesus being the great high priest. But we also know of Jesus as the king. So to acknowledge Jesus as the prophet is is not knowing or getting a fuller understanding of Jesus. Islam, Muslims, acknowledge Jesus as a prophet. But that's not the right picture, is it? That's not the right understanding of who Jesus is. But then verses 41 to 43, others said... He is the Christ. Still others asked, How can the Christ come from Galilee? Does not the scripture say that the Christ will come from David's family and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. And we can see from some of the responses that a lot of people in the crowd were familiar with the words of the Bible. I'm sure you're all familiar with the Bible. And I'm sure there's people out there that are familiar with the Bible. But sometimes we just don't have an understanding of the Bible for what it is. And sometimes we can grab a little passage of the Bible and think, that's all I need. I only need to know that bit because it suits what I need. I was thinking of that the other day because, I don't know, like, like I've got some strange habits, but I often read editorials in newspapers. Do you read them? Well, we have a little local community paper. It's called the Melton Leader News. And a couple of weeks ago, we had a gentleman write in, and I'll just read it out to you. I find it quite interesting because it actually describes people who, who think they know the Bible. It says, It amazes me that individuals write in, quote in, write in quoting sayings from the Bible as though they were really spoken and factual. With reference to so-and-so, I quote, For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. Not only is the God character in the Bible a jealous entity, with the exception of one one family and a few animals, he drowned every living thing on earth. He turned Lot's wife into a pillar of salt 
He allowed Moses to kill about 3,000 people for simply making a golden calf and sent a plague upon the remainder of the Levi tribe. God incited Moses to attack the Midianites and all the men were slain, then all the boy children and all the women who were not virgins. When the Israelites made sacrifices to Baal, God ordered Moses to take all the heads of the people and hang them up before the Lord against the sun. And so it goes on page after page. This is the stating. This is what gets me. Really, is this a publication from which to quote morals and rules for living? Please use your own thoughts and not the Bible as a reference source. Yours sincerely, and I won't mention the gentleman's name. It wasn't my name. Yes, our God is a jealous God. God is jealous for his people. God is jealous that we worship him as the only true God. But this man has read little bits of the Bible and thought, right, I've got an understanding of what the picture is, and yeah, the picture that it provides of God is no good. They haven't got the full picture of Christ in this passage. They need, they should have realised that yes, Christ was from David's family. Yes, he was born in Bethlehem. Yes, he is the Christ. Having some sort of knowledge of the Bible is not sufficient. You have to have a knowledge of Christ as the Saviour. You need to know him as your Saviour. That will save you, not your head knowledge. And finally, just the last closing verses. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke about this way that this man does, the guards declared. You mean he has deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted? Has any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. We come to our old favourites, the Pharisees. They knew the law of God. They were the green berets of knowing the Bible. They knew the God's ten laws. And they even added on their own laws, on top of God's ten laws, because they thought if we obey these laws, we'll be right with God. Someone did a tally of the Pharisees and, and God's ten commandments and their oral laws, and apparently it came to a total of 613 commandments that they had to follow in order to be right with God. 613 laws. And they thought that if they followed these laws, they would be right with God. And I'm sure there's people that think, if I follow God's commandments, I'll be right with God. It's not the case. In our own ability, without the power of the Holy Spirit, we can't obey God's laws perfectly. We are a sinful people. You may have a thorough knowledge of the law of God, and you, think that you might think that you can work your way right with God, but you can't. The only way you can be right with God is to obtain that living water by trusting in Jesus as the Christ and the Saviour. And just looking at the last character here, verse 50 to 52. I won't read them out, but we're looking at Nicodemus here. We all know Nicodemus from the Bible. He was the one in John chapter 3 who, who Christ said, John 3.16. Nicodemus seems like a good bloke. Nicodemus was one of the, the ruling party and Nicodemus is the one who went out and spoke to Christ one-on-one, -on -one, wanting to know who he is. Nicodemus even defends Christ here. Nicodemus reminds me of someone that I know 
who's the most honest man that I've ever met in my life. He's the guy that I would give the keys for my house to him and know that he would look after my house. He's the one that I'd let him take my kids home if I was stuck at some event and know that he would look after my kids. This is the guy that knows what what is right and wrong, knows about Jesus because I've spoken to him about him. But this is the guy who still doesn't trust in Jesus as his saviour. Just like Nicodemus. Because we don't know what happens with Nicodemus, but all that we have in the gospel is that nowhere do we see Nicodemus confessing that Jesus is the Christ. He might have been a great bloke. He might have been a really good bloke. But if he doesn't know Jesus as the Christ, he's going to perish. Well, I've focused on some negatives. God's word is also to build us up. God's word is also to encourage us as well. And that's why I want to appeal to all of you who do know Christ as the Saviour, who have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit, who have been indwelt by that living water. These verses tell us how the living water, the Holy Spirit, when it goes into you, also flows out of you as well. And what that means is those who trust in Christ, as they are blessed, so are they a blessing to others. And that's the beauty of a church community. That's the beauty of belonging to a family of believers. That as you trust in Christ as your saviour, you can be a blessing to others. And I'm sure there's people here now who the moment they hear another brother or sister is struggling will be the first one to call them up and encourage them. The moment they hear that someone is not well will be the first person to visit them in hospital. The moment they know that somebody out there in the community is struggling, who's searching for answers, that person who has been indwelt by the Holy Spirit is the first one who goes out there, takes that person aside, guides them, encourages them and shares the gospel with them. That person who has been indwelt by the power of the Holy Spirit is the one who bears the fruits of that Spirit. Who knows the fruits of the Spirit? Anybody can read them out to me or do you want me to read them out to you? All right, I'll read it out. It's okay. We're we're going okay. Galatians 5.22-23. It says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. I pray that if you know Christ as a saviour, if you have been indwelt with the Holy Spirit, the living water of the Holy Spirit, that you will be bearing these fruit. That you are a loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, good, faithful, gentle, self-controlled person. And I dare not look at my children because they're probably looking at me now saying, you, loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind? And that's a sad fact that as Christians, we should be like this, but we're not. And do you know what half the problem is? I don't think I don't think as Christians God withdraws or the Holy Spirit withdraws from our life. I don't think that once we come to know Christ as our Saviour and we have been indwelt by the Spirit, the Spirit then departs from us. I think the problem is we replace it with something else. So instead of focusing upon Christ and the joys of knowing that I am saved, I bring in other stuff 
that pushes the spirit to the side. So instead of being loving and joyful, I become negative, aggressive, unkind. I just pray that knowing Christ is your saviour, knowing that you have the guarantee of the living water of the Holy Spirit in your life, that you will have your eyes focused on Christ. And I promise you that if you focus your life on Christ, use him as your guide, you will bear that fruit. If you replace it with other things, what you replace it with will control your life. So may you all today be people who are loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, good, faithful, gentle and self-controlled people who trust in Christ and who have been indwelt by the living waters of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, there are truths in your word which are sometimes difficult for us to comprehend, but they are great truths. And we thank you for the great promises that we have, that if we trust in Christ, trust in his word, we have the promise of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And not only do we have the promise of being made right with you, but we have the assurance that we can be a blessing to others. So, Lord, may we be those who have living waters flowing out from within us and that this community may see the life-giving blessings that can be obtained in Christ Jesus. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.